Well, last week we finished our reading uh, through the book of Genesis, and uh, that is, has been usually, most of the time, uh, the first reading that we've had from Scripture on a Sunday morning uh, as we start our service. And today we started with a new book, as you notice, the book of Acts, as our first reading. Uh, I wanted to give a little bit of explanation on the front end of the sermon today uh, about what we have been doing and why we have chosen to do things the way that we do things. Uh, and we started reading through the book of Genesis with intention and purpose, because the book of Genesis is the foundation for all of the rest of the Bible. So for us to really understand Exodus through Revelation, we must understand Genesis. We have to have a pretty good concept of what is there in the narrative that Genesis covers through the 50 chapters that are there. Now, the storyline of Genesis gives us a context for every other book of the Bible. So if you don't understand a book of the Bible, go back to Genesis, and you, you probably have missed something in there that will then help you understand that, that thing in that other, other prophet or other book of the New Testament, maybe, that you don't quite understand. Uh, and the book of Genesis gives a lot of answers. Specifically, the first three chapters of Genesis gives us a whole lot of answers to a lot of our questions. So reading through a book of the Bible together in its entirety uh, has been our practice, and this is on purpose and intention to help us be reminded together of who God is and what God has been doing. And what we have been hearing together is a reminder of God's faithfulness that dates back thousands of years, and even to today we see that storyline of God working out salvation in humanity is still true and still working. So as we started this morning in the book of Acts, we started another narrative, and the storyline of that narrative is of the early church, or the starting of the church there in Jerusalem, and also in that region of the world that is covering uh, part of Paul's missionary work that happened there uh, in that region. So it is also the storyline of how God's Word is still being fulfilled today. So as we read through the book of Acts, what we are going to learn and hear and hear together is the progression of the gospel message across the world and how that plays out to us today and uh, our part of that mission. So it is our hope that you hear the reading of God's Word as an encouragement and as the help in which it really is, and that you are reminded together of how God is still good and He is still working. The second scripture reading that we usually have on a Sunday morning is connected to the sermon in some way, whether it be a, a direct supporting text or an easily identified supporting text to the sermon. And usually it's used in the sermon, but not always. And we believe that the Bible, it is authoritative. It is where we, we adjust our life to. It is the plan in which we can read, we can understand, and we can set ourselves on the right path according to it. And it is helpful, it is instructive, even if we don't quite understand something, even with passages that are strange or uncomfortable for you to read publicly, as some of you have done through Genesis, into some very strange things and questionable things. We may not always understand them or even explain them publicly, but they can be helpful for us. So with that, I invite you to open your Bible to a different book. That is the book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 26. Again, as we are working through the Scripture and working uh, kind of 
uh, in a expositional way through the book of Isaiah. We continue this study that is what I believe to be one of the most influential books of the Old Testament. Now, Genesis being the foundation of really the rest of the Bible, I think Isaiah is largely foundational to the New Testament in what we, what we find about who Jesus Christ is in the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, which we haven't gotten there yet, but we will one day. And so this chapter that we are in, it is part of a section of Isaiah that is acting as a capstone on chapters 13 through 23. So 24 through 27 are acting as kind of the capstone of those chapters. And this chapter is like the previous chapter that we looked at last week, where it is filled with a lot of hope for the future, a lot of hope for those that that belong to Christ. And what we see in this chapter, it opens with a song. So I'm not going to sing this for us, but I am going to read it together in verses 1 through 6. This is the first of the three sections that we find in this chapter, and it is a song of trust in the Lord. Look at verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation uh, that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height and lofty city he lays low, lays it low, lays it low to the ground, cast it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Trust is one of the most important, if not the most important aspect of any relationship, right? If you don't have trust in a relationship, you don't have much of a relationship And this is not only true between our relationships between spouses, between parents and children, or co-worker to boss, but trust is vital in every relationship for it to be healthy. If we're to have a healthy relationship, there must be trust. And the opening of this chapter points to the importance of trust that we have with God. And so the health of our relationship is connected to how much we really trust Him. And so kind of the big question of the morning is, do you trust him? Do you trust in who he is? Now, trust is a fragile thing, isn't it? Or fragile, as they say in Italian. Um, That's a joke, inside joke. Uh, it, It can be easily broken. It can quickly be dismantled. It can quickly fall apart. And it is really, really hard to be regained, isn't it? Trust is vital. And this chapter, it gives even more and more reasons for you to trust in the Lord, for your, your trust to be strengthened in the Lord. And that's my hope this morning for you, is that you would find a strengthening of your trust in the Lord by this chapter. Now, one of those things that should re, be encouraging to our trust in God is the fact that God secures us in perfect peace, as verse 3 says. Look at verse 3. It, it tells us, that you keep him in perfect peace. Now, how does the Lord secure us in perfect peace? How how does he do that? Notice as what it says there in verse 3, whose mind is stayed on you? How are you secured in perfect peace? It is whose mind is stayed in you. So another way that this verse gets translated in different translations, maybe you have one of these, it says something to the effect of a steadfast of mind. Steadfast of mind which means that a person is focused 
in their character and in their desires toward God. That's what it means to be steadfast or having your mind stayed on God. So all of your character, all of your desire, it's moving toward who is God and my trust in God. So the question that is important is how does one become steadfast in mind or or how can you have your mind stayed on God? That's a really important question. If it keeps us in perfect peace. Well, the focus, even from this passage, is not on the person, but on the essential element within the person. And what is that essential element? It is faith or trust, as we can call it. This is the essential element in the person. So again, in verse 3, it helps us here by saying, He trusts in you. So you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. So a mind that is steadfast upon the Lord is one that trusts in God or has a faith in God. Or we, we could even use another word, belief in God. And usually whenever I'm talking to somebody today about a faith in God or a belief in God, I usually use the word trust because people have a better concept of that today than they do faith and belief. They, they distort that with other things that people will say they believe in or have faith in that are really empty things. And so this idea of faith, where does it come from? Where does faith originate from? It is, I would say, a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, as Hillary read for us this morning, Paul writes these words, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So our response to the gospel message of Jesus Christ should be faith, belief, trust. This is how you should respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. But even faith is not of your own doing or creation, according to Paul. He would say that your faith has been given or gifted to you from God. And this is why you have faith, because God has planted it there. He's put it there. If salvation is by grace, as verse 8 says in Ephesians 2, that means there must not be anything in our own power that we could boast about even our own faith. Grace, if you want a simple definition of grace, it is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. This is what grace is. So we've been given grace, and we've been given faith. This is how God has operated in salvation for us. Now, some might argue this interpretation that I have of this verse, of these two verses, but let me direct your attention to the context of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The word this that is used in, those, uh, in the verse 8 is not referring to grace only, but must also connect to faith. Because Paul cannot say that grace is the gift, which is not your own doing, and then exclude faith as if it is your doing, as this would be instantly a creation of contradiction and a degradation of what grace really is. And also, it would also negate verse 9 of what it says. It must be both grace and faith that are gifts from God. Both of them must be gifts from Him. Saying that only grace is the gift would destroy the meaning of grace as unmerited favor. If faith 
could be a work of the person or originate in the person. It would then be a work in which someone could boast about. They could get to heaven and say, well, I'm here because I had faith and it was mine, which would make Paul's words here obsolete or self-negating. So faith and grace both are gifts of God. Now let me give you two other examples from the New Testament where this is identified as a gift from God, faith being a gift from God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, in the ESV version that we just read, the word obtain might seem in English to mean or allow for a person to have the originating faith. But the Greek understanding of this word means literally obtained by lot, which you have heard the idea of a casting of lots, right? We've heard this through the scriptures, that there would be a casting of lots. Or we could say in modern day terms, a gamble or a rolling of the dice. So the obtaining of this verse Uh, in this verse of faith is not upon the power of the individual but upon the allotment from God. God has given the allotment of faith. They've obtained it, this faith, they've attained it from God. He is the one that has allotted it to the person. So the same word is also used in John chapter 19 verse 24 as the soldiers cast lots for the garments of Jesus. So how did they win the garments of Jesus? It was by chance, which I would say there are no such things in the context of a providential God, but they cast lots to receive those garments. They were allotted them, obtained them by God's allotment to them. And also, another passage is Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, where Paul writes, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So Paul indicates here that one's belief and one's suffering has been granted, or we could say has been gifted to them from God. Now, this is a whole other sermon that we could get into about the suffering, maybe in which you're going through and the things which you, you have in your life and, and how they are a truly a gift from God. And that's a really deep and laborious concept to work through. We don't have time to do that this morning. But this is what Paul is telling us, that we have been given belief, given faith, given trust, and suffering. Why? For the sake of Jesus Christ. So we have been granted or gifted faith in the Lord, and this is a real faith that we have, a personal faith that we have. So the trust that Isaiah is talking about in chapter 26, verses 3 and 4, it is also personal, it is individual, and that is the perfect And this is why it brings perfect peace, not just to a whole group of people, but to a specific person. You, Christian, can have perfect peace because the faith in which you have is personal and it is real. Now, why does this belief in the Lord bring peace? Well, because, look at verse 3 again, it is the Lord who keeps you. He keeps you. You, meaning God, keep him in perfect peace. It is not you who keeps you, it is him who keeps you. 
And here's yet another place why we Baptists come up with this doctrine of, the, of eternal security of the believer is because of passages like this that point to the fact that God is the one that is keeping you. It is the same idea of, of knowing the ark as God kept him in the ark. He preserved him. He secured him there. The instruction to trust in the Lord forever that we see here it is a literal, a literal, tangible instruction. It's literal and tangible to us because of who God is. He is the one who keeps or preserves you in your belief, and He is eternal. He is the eternal God. And so as Isaiah writes there in, in verse 4, he calls Him the everlasting rock the everlasting rock. So being told to trust Him forever literally means you can trust Him forever because He is everlasting. He is eternal. So this is literal to us. Yes, you can trust Him forever because He is forever. Now we sang just a moment ago, Augustus Top Lady, and that's a fun name, Augustus Top Lady's Rock of Ages. Now, in verse 1 of this song, he, he writes these words, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Why did he write those words? It's because of verses like verse 4. He understood God to be the everlasting rock. Why can he write such hope-filled words like the rock of ages, save from wrath and make me pure? Why? Because he's hidden in the cleft of the rock. Why? He's the everlasting God. It's being hidden in the everlasting rock that brings peace, perfect peace to your soul. It is, it is all through the blood of Jesus Christ that has saved you from the wrath of God. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that has made you pure. And when Jesus rose from the grave, it was a conquering of death, and it was a, a guarantee to all who come to him in faith, real, tangible faith, that they would rise from the dead and have eternal life. This is the good news of Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, that he is the everlasting rock. And if we are kept in him as he promises to do, we will have perfect peace. Now, it's a very real and a very, I think, present possibility that you are struggling in your belief or in your trust of God this morning. It's very real. This is not uncommon for people today, for Christians today, and it was not uncommon in Jesus' day either for people to lack trust or belief. If you remember the story of the father who, who brought his son to Jesus that was possessed by a demon and asked Jesus to cast out the demon and his disciples couldn't do it and Jesus tells the father, well, all things are possible for the one who believes and in Mark 9, verse 24, you, you hear the response of the Father, and you know this response. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. What this man demonstrates 
is what every believer struggles with, unbelief. We are a mixture, Christian. We are mixtures of belief and unbelief. And we will always be that until we are perfected. We are going to struggle with unbelief. And so just because there's a measure of unbelief in you doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. It means you're human. It means that you're not perfected yet. So the work of, self, uh, of sanctification is still happening in life. We don't have perfect spiritual vision yet. We don't completely see everything like we should. And so we have unbelief at times. One day we will see things like we should, but, but most of the time through our life we are going to sound just like this father, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I think this needs to be our prayer, probably on a daily basis. Lord, I believe, but I got this thing that I'm struggling to believe you with. Help my unbelief. Whatever that might be for you this morning with, with that Maybe it's a very small thing that you are just doubting God with. Pray, help my unbelief. Why? He is your everlasting rock to hide in. He, he is this. So go to Him. Go to Him with your unbelief. Confess what your weakness is, and your weakness is the unbelief that is in you. And let the Holy Spirit encourage you, bring other people into your life to, to bring you encouragement. Other people that would point you to the only place that can really give you peace, perfect peace, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So put your faith in the one who has paid your sin debt, and you will find that there is peace for your soul as you are hidden into the cleft of the rock, the everlasting rock and that is Jesus, our Savior. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. And what is He trustworthy and faithful to do? He is faithful and trustworthy to bring you into the eternal city of peace. If you go back to the last few chapters in this idea of Jerusalem being, as it's called, the foundation of peace, this is the city that will be restored. The, the world that will be restored will be a peaceful place. Why? Because... This is who God is, and He will dwell there. He will rule there. We will be brought into those gates. So the opening song, it reminds us to put our faith, our trust in the Lord. And then the next section gives us even more reasons to do such a thing. Look at verses 7 through 15. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and, be, and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of, the upright, of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire... For your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. 
to the to that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. So the journey of this life, it is filled with a lot of dangers and a lot of pitfalls. You are experiencing these. You, you will go through these things, which makes it hard to really know what is the path in which I should take. What is the way in which I should go in this life? But if you look at verses 7 through 9, and we are shown where to walk. We're told where to walk. And it's the right place. It is the path of the righteous. And the path of the righteous is level. It is smoothed out. Now, if you have ever driven down a road which you live in independence, so I know you have, that is filled with potholes and all kinds of bumps and all kinds of dangers that are there, you understand the importance of a smooth road, especially if you have a hot cup of coffee in your hand. It's important to have a smooth, level road. And this is what's promised to us in verses 7 through 9, that we have a smooth way to walk. As verse 7 it tells us, it's leveled out. And this is the way that we should walk, on the level, the right way, which is only by walking according to the instruction and the direction of God. This is what that means. It is His way. Look at verse 8 again. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. So as verse 8 says, we must walk in His judgments, or we could say His statutes or His law. So the way in which God has, has shown us, told us, this is how you should walk, that's how we should walk. When you do this, you are walking in righteousness. And the things that would cause you to stumble, the things that would cause you to fall, they've been smoothed over if you would walk on that path. And may, maybe your life is just filled with chaos and just people of chaos and you think, there, there's no, there is no other road. The only road I have is one filled with potholes. That's not true according to these verses. It says here that there is a path of the righteous, and it is level, it is smooth. Now, I'm not saying with that that everything's going to be hunky-dory or full of peaches and cream for you that smell like roses the whole time, whatever analogy you want to use. But what I mean is that the steps in which you take, if you follow the path of God... You will not fall into ditches. You will not fall into sin or temptations. You will stay out of those things in the midst of the chaos. You won't be dragged into gossip. You won't be dragged into lies. Why? Because you're walking in his judgments. And when you do this, when you walk in righteousness, you can help others walk in righteousness. If you look at verses 8 and 9, they speak of there being a desire, a longing in the hearts of the righteous to follow the way of God. The, the word that is used in verse 9 here in the ESV uses the word yearns, my soul yearns for you. It could also be translated as lust for or desire for. So let that connect for you the deep passion that is there or should be there in the heart of the believer, a jealousy for the things of God. A believer should be motivated to do what God has told them to do because they trust Him. 
Again, trust is foundational. Why do they have such a yearning for him? Why do they have a passion for him? Because they trust him. And out of this trust, they, they, have, they have God's intentions in their mind because they understand he has their best interest in mind. He wants what's best for them. And so they follow the, his instructions. They walk this path. A Christian should be one who looks at the path of their life as an opportunity or opportunities to demonstrate how much they really do love the Lord. Is this how you look at your life? In the chaos and the turmoil that, that's happening in your life, do you look at your life and say, this is the path God has laid out for me. Yes, there's all of these things, but there is a smooth path through here, and I'm going to do everything I can to give as much glory to God in these moments. It's going to be a way for me to demonstrate how much I really desire Him, lust for Him, have a passion for Him. Or, Christian, do you have a view of your life as, well, how much sin can I really get away with and still go to heaven? Because that's what I really see from a lot of people is that view of life. A Christian should be steadfast in their mind for the things of God, which will lead to steadfast obedience to God. So if the relationship is not healthy, if trust is not healthy, let's not expect there to be real obedience that's going to take place in your life. There's not going to be a real trust for Him, so you're not going to follow Him. Now, there is a key to obeying God in verse 8. I want you to take note of this. Look at verse 8. It says, we wait for you. Here's the key. Here's the key to obeying God. We wait for you. When we wait on the Lord to move and to work, we are exercising what? Trust. We're really saying we trust Him when we wait on Him. We are saying in that waiting, Lord, your plans are good. Your plans are right. No matter how long they take, and that's the part we don't like, right? However long it takes for the Lord to reveal himself to you is exactly what you needed when you needed it. And if you've been alive for any amount of time, you have experienced that. You've prayed for something, you've asked for something, you've waited for something, and then God gave it to you right when you really, really, really did need it. His timing is always better than your timing. Always. Let me reemphasize that again. Always better than your timing. In verses 10 through 15 of this section, we're given a, a contrast here of, of the righteous and the wicked. One thing that the wicked cannot see is the working of God accurately. They see God's timing as mean. They see God's timing as, as evil. They misinterpret what God has been doing in their life. They take for granted the mercy which has been shown to them. They remain in their sins because they do not repent and they do not trust Him. Remaining blinded by the darkness of their hearts, toward their own sin, or even the wrath of God upon those that are just like them. They look at them and, and mock them and say, yeah, you deserve that. When the Christian really should understand, we deserve that. We are the ones that deserve God's wrath. 
But the wicked do not see this. They, they remain in their sin. They remain in their evil intentions of their heart against God because they do not trust Him. They, as the Bible tells us, they, they hate Him. Their attitude toward God remains apathetic, and they treat God as though He's insignificant. And so all the things which maybe they're witnessing in their life or the life of other people, they write those things off or dismiss those things as, nah, surely it's not God. It's got to be something else. Or if it is God, it's right for them to suffer because I'm better than them. Now, there is coming a day when there will be a clear distinction between those who are the Lord's people and those who are not, as verse 11 indicates for us. In the next verse, verse 12, look at this one. Let's read this one again. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. So from this verse, we learn that all of our efforts, all of the works in which we could do, all the good things that we could accomplish, they are because of who? The Lord. It is only by His power that we have accomplished anything good and right the reason why you did anything good and right in your life up to this point has been because of the grace of God upon you. Which is what Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, verse 21. Also, he reminds us of this in, in his uh, presentation of the true vine in John 15, 5. If you abide in me and I in you, if you don't do this, then you can do nothing. So the righteous will confess that it is the Lord who has done all that is right in their life. They humbly understand and recognize it is, it is the Lord. They, they will say this in verse 12, Indeed, it is you that has done all of our works. It is you, Lord. But the wicked, how do they respond? How do they treat life and how do they treat God? They will boast about themselves. They will think they have accomplished something, they have done something, and this is why God should honor them. One thing I want you to be aware of about this section is even though there is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, notice that both are on earth at the same time. I don't know if you've witnessed that in your own life so far. The righteous and the wicked are on earth at the same time. There will come a time when the wheat will be separated from the tares, the sheep from the goats, there is coming a time, and this is what's described in, in 24 through 27, of when this time will come, the righteous will have to endure until that point. We will have to deal with this world and all of the brokenness, all of the pain, all of the loss, because of how this world is doomed to face those things and the hope that the righteous can cling to, even in the midst of a broken world, is this reality that all of history is moving toward a moment of total and complete victory in the Lord. If you go back to verse 3, perfect peace. We can spiritually have perfect peace, but there will come a day when physically we will have perfect peace. As verse 15 in this passage indicates, God will keep enlarging his kingdom. The lands of his people will keep growing until all of the world does what? They give glory to his name alone. That everyone
will testify that the Lord is, as Stephen referred to Psalm 8, majestic. There is no one else in the world like him. So the Lord can be trusted because he is faithful. He is faithful to his justice and he is faithful to the righteous. I think this is one of the things that we can be encouraged with from verses 7 through 15. Now the last section that we have here, 16 through 21, reminds us again of the Lord's work of salvation. Look at verse 16. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pains. When she is near to give birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we gave birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and will no more cover its slain. So this section of this chapter is again another reminder that salvation is all of the Lord. Notice the word picture that is used here in verses 16 through 18, where it changes from they to we. It moves from them to us, as Isaiah writes. He is saying that people have tried to save themselves, and this is like being pregnant and and going through all of the pain, all of the labor, only to give birth to wind. Now, how disappointing would that be, moms, right? You're like, something's majorly wrong here. And and this is the reality of what Isaiah is saying. There's something majorly wrong for those that think, I am going to accomplish my salvation. There's a major problem with that. Verse 18 says, we have accomplished no, underline that, no deliverance in the earth. So all attempts of saving yourself will not bring about salvation or any kind of deliverance. There's only one thing, one thing that can save you, that is humbly giving yourself over to the hands of a merciful God who is the everlasting rock, who promises to save those who would come to him in repentance. He is the only way to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. And if you have this fictitious idea that there's some grand scale in heaven, that all of your bad is on one side and all of your good is put on the other, and, and you, all you have to do is just even that thing out or just tip it just enough on the good side that you get in, let me crush that for you. There is no such scale. And the scale that is there, if there was one, is the comparison between you and Jesus. And he was perfect in every thought, word, and deed. So the standard is perfection. How have you done? How has anyone done? Miserable, terrible, awful. And the only way in which you can be brought into the kingdom of heaven is through perfection. How is that applied to us? It is through the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. And you have to go through the blood to get into the kingdom. 
God has been teaching his people to trust him. Throughout the, from Genesis on, what we have been seeing is God has been trying to teach his people to trust him. The reoccurring theme of the Old Testament is salvation belongs to the Lord. It is him. He alone. Salvation is by grace alone. His sovereign grace alone. And we've seen repeatedly through Isaiah so far that any attempts at self-salvation or self-deliverance is met with Shame, if you remember last week, the whole swimming through a pile of poo, or somebody later told me, maybe a better way to put it would be like a pool of poo. Like, I don't know. You get the picture. It's disgusting, right? It's shameful. So any attempt at trying to save yourself is shameful, and it leads to destruction. So in verses 16 through 18, they are sad. They are depressing verses, but look at the next two. They're extremely encouraging about God working in salvation. Verse 19 says, Your dead shall live. Who's dead? God's. The people that belong to Him. His people. They will live. Yes, it is more than likely you are going to die. More than likely this is going to happen in your life. This is a result of the curse that was put upon Adam and all those that would come after Adam in his bloodline. Yes, this is what's going to happen. But those who believe in Christ, who trust in Christ, they will live again because of what God will do with them. Now this verse, it makes it clear, verse 19, makes it very clear that this is not just a spiritual rising from the grave. Look at the words, their bodies shall rise. So again, last week we talked about the Sadducees and and how they didn't believe in any kind of afterlife or any kind of resurrection. And again, again in Isaiah, he is saying there will be a resurrection and it will be a physical resurrection from the dust of the earth. So comparing 18, verse 18 and verse 19, we see that with man it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God. 16 through 18, it is impossible to deliver yourself, to bring yourself into the kingdom of God, but with God, in verse 19, it's not impossible. It's not impossible at all, which means what? That our salvation is all of God. In verse 20, there's a very similar feel to what God commanded the people of Israel to do at the Passover in Egypt. If you look at verse 20 again, come my people, enter your chambers, shut the doors behind you, hide yourself for a little while until the fury has passed by. There's the same kind of sense, the same kind of picture that is there of hiding in this Passover. They shut themselves inside of a house. They applied the blood of a spotless lamb over the doorpost as a sign that they had faith, they had trust, they had belief in the provision and the protection of God. This is the call of the gospel, that everyone needs to come under the doorpost of the spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You must come under into that house And the only place of true security and true safety is found in the welcoming arms of Jesus. What is he? Our everlasting rock. Christian, you must endure for a little while longer. 
You, you must. But in this world, you are not alone. You're not alone as displayed even here this morning with this gathering that is happening here, but you're not alone because what has been promised to you, it is the Holy Spirit that would come to you and abide in you. In this chapter, it should be another encouragement about the abiding peace that comes through knowing who Jesus Christ is and the salvation that you have in Him in the midst of a crumbling and failing world. So an application of this chapter, I encourage you to take heart. Take heart in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your afflictions, because you do know the source of peace. You do have salvation from the grave. Focus yourself on Jesus Christ in the midst of your chaos, in the midst of your trouble. Focus your mind, set your mind on Him, as verse 3 has said, whose mind is stayed on you. Make steadfast your mind on Him. And if, if we do this, then the, the anxieties and the worries of life, they will start to fade. But the moment that we take our eyes off of Him, we will start to spiral out of control and we will spiral out of peace. Again, a very simple illustration of this is Peter, right? As Jesus is walking on the water, they think it's some demon or ghost thing coming towards them, and they're all afraid, and then Jesus says, it's I, and Peter says, well, call me out of the water, and I'll come to you, and Jesus says, well, come on, what you doing? That's a paraphrase, and he, he gets out of the boat, he walks on the water, but then what happens? He takes his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Place your cares. Place your burdens upon him. He is more than adequate to carry them. And guess what? He is more than adequate or capable to carry you while he carries them. That's how big he is. He offers rest, or we could even say, because of Isaiah 26, he offers perfect peace. So the question, the question that we need to ask ourselves, am I trusting him with my life? Am I really trusting him? Do I really have belief in him? With the decisions that you're making or the decisions that you need to make, are you really trusting him are you waiting upon him or are you running ahead of him, trying to, trying to get ahead of God? Impatience shows a lack of trust in God. Frustration and anxiety reveals a lack of trust in his providential care for you. So let's spend some time in reflection this morning thinking through, praying through this question, are you trusting God with these things? Are you trusting him with your time? We all have been allotted the same time every day, 24 hours. How are you trusting him with your time? What about your money? How are you trusting him with what he has given you, what he has blessed you with financially? And we could probably even wrap up into that other resources maybe that you have. What about your family? Are you believing God? Are you trusting God with your family? Or are you trying to play God with your family? 
What about politics? Do you believe that he is the sovereign Lord, or do you think that someone else that could be elected could be sovereign better than he could? What about your spiritual growth? Maybe you've been praying and, and asking God to free you from something or, or move in your life in some way, and, and you're becoming impatient with him. So are you trusting him with that? What about forgiveness in your life? People that maybe have wounded you, hurt you, said something against you, or, or maybe they've done none of those things, and you're just an unforgiving person. Are you trusting him in that? What about your other sufferings in your life? Are you trusting him with those things? Would you spend some time this morning just praying through and asking God to reveal to you Maybe areas that you're not praying that prayer of, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe you're not really believing that he is the everlasting rock in this one area. You think, yes, these other things, but not that one that's left outside of the rock. And you need to humbly repent of that and ask God to help you trust him in that. Would you spend just a few moments and I'll pray for us and we'll sing one final song and be dismissed.